Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. Today's a special episode. What I've done is I've gathered together some clips of audio that I've made while I was in Cannes this year, watching loads of amazing movies and talking to lots of amazing people. So I've gathered uh, some of their recommendations and just some general chat basically about film. And then later on in the episode, we also will have a couple of of listeners, Ian Killick and Kai Ross, who, uh, who give their recommended books. So it's an opportunity for for me to do a slightly different type of episode where we have uh, we we gather together a lot of a lot of voices and uh, and anyway I, I I've got a feeling you'll enjoy it it's uh, it's a slightly different episode if you enjoy it please remember to subscribe to like all that sort of stuff but before you do any of that enjoy the conversation. I am Luke Hicks. I'm writing for the film stage. Never heard of it. Me neither. Okay. What's your favorite? Got me in. How's your can? It's terrific. I haven't seen like maybe like one or two bad things. Everything else has been at least pretty good. Right. Okay. What's your favorite so far? Oh, man. Maybe Armageddon Time or EO. Okay, okay, yeah. donkeys. Donkeys. Yeah. Don- donkeys or... All the donkeys. Armageddon Time's got a really weird title, right? Yeah, it does. Also a weird title card. Yeah. Like that, like, street graffiti in the corner. That, like, yeah. fades in and out. Yeah, that's yeah. true. <coughs> okay, <coughs> don't worry, I'll, I'll, t- I'll cut out the coughing. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite film book? I'm going to say Making Movies by Sidney Lumet. 
Oh, it's a wonderful book, that. Yeah, it is so fucking good. He has such a clear way of writing. It's insane. Really I, I love the way you, you used a Lumet-style uh, curse word as you uh, appreciated it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. You know, it's, a, it's an expletive. Yeah. yeah. T- tell us a bit about the book and why you like it. Um, I think he is just someone who has such an insane amount of experience, and the way he talks about filmmaking is a very, like, humanist kind of way. And I feel like he brings with it this, like, philosophy of sort of, like, ethical spectatorship and filmmaking like at the same time so in a weird way while he's talking about making movies he's also like teaching you how to watch movies in a sense so i feel like it's just this holistic thing with movies where you're like from from really small or just like intimate kind of like scenes between characters that's just like pure dialogue and him talking about the way he frames those things and the way he like like the level of the camera and the lighting and how all these things play into these decisions on set and like how certain films call for different things and how there are like no rules to cinema and the way you make cinema or art but that there are like there's only you can like follow the project essentially and like follow it passionately with people who also care about it um yeah, yeah this, he speaks this. so clearly that's yeah, like the thing yeah. that makes the book incredible is like all these people with incredible experience who couldn't write this book but it's like he can just tell you in such succinct and plain ways without talking over your head at all it makes you feel like you belong in the conversation and Amazing. That's a great choice, Luke. I, I totally agree with that. It's, he's, he's as interested in the catering as he is in the criticism. And it's yeah, sort yeah. of like yeah. just those two yeah, branches are really, uh, really important. Cheers, Luke. Have yeah. a great can. All right, I will. Yeah, you too. Oh, I see. That's great. That'll go in. Yeah, I think that, that sounded great to me. Um, my name is Sabina, Sabina Petkova, and I'm here as a critic, accredited with the press, but I'm also doing a programming gig as well. Excellent. Well, you, who are you programming for? It's my first year at Cambridge Film Festival, a part of a programming panel for the autumn feature slate. So we're getting to snag all the good titles. Excellent. That sounds very exciting. And who are you writing for? I'm here with Awards Watch, US-based and UK-based. I'm here with Screen Queens. Oh, brilliant. That sounds like you've got a full platter of work to do. And we've just come out of the Cohen, I keep, keep saying Cohen Brothers documentary, but of course it's, it's Ethan Cohen's documentary, Jerry Lee Lewis, Trouble in Mind. What did you think of that? Hot take. Hot take. Great music. That's the hottest take of all hot takes, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it buried a little bit the, the, the lead of the stories. Uh, people, like he marries his 12-year-old cousin and that sort of gets a little laughed off, doesn't it? Yeah, well, we will learn at some point that there was a um, gunshot involved as well in that story. <laughs> and again, it, that just gets passed off as a joke. Oh, he shot someone. Yeah, and that's kind of funny. Well, he kind of didn't mean it, you know, but he may, may have did it, may have not. He didn't mean to shoot him. It's just this um, very, very intriguing way of portraying it. I think. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so what's your favorite film book or your film book recommendation? I think um, I'm very happy to say this. Uh, It's a book by Giuliana Bruno, who is a scholar, but the book is not itself entirely scholarly. I think Uh, it's very rich in style and examples and it's called Atlas of Emotion. Mm. Yeah, do you know it? No, I don't. No, I'm, I'm writing it down right now. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a really big book, I think, um, and it was very difficult to find. Thankfully, Verso Books re, uh, re, republished it very recently. Um, and it's quite hefty, mm. um, and it deals with geography and psychogeography, film space, and film emotions as well. So I, I have never read a better analysis of Hirosh- Hiroshima Mon Amour 
to oh, be fair. Right, yeah, right. and it brings out a lot of examples who are from art, other kinds of art as well. Oh, so it's like a very culturally broad, uh, yeah. put, putting film in, inside a, a, exactly. a bigger, bigger... It's it's a very rich texture, very rich book and it's textures for sure and it's materials, but everything comes together in film. Um, so she does, she does a deep dive into how cities are portrayed, but not as main characters, but it's just evocations of people's journeys as well. Um, and I like that she puts things side by side all the time in layers, everything. You know how um, I think it was Sigmund Freud who wrote that um, memory is like a city, our subconscious is like a city, structures like a city. So that mm. always reminds me of this, and that's helped me a lot watching films and, and writing. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you how influential it's been in in your own work. Yeah, it's just inhabiting your mind, inhabiting the film with your mind in a completely different way. I mean, when I just start imagining walking through the film world and conversing with the characters i feel like this is something that this book has done for me for sure oh that sounds brilliant that's definitely on my list now <laughs> thanks <laughs> for that thanks good for that. i'm very happy i'm always happy to sing praises to this book because uh yeah juliana hasn't had um a lot of love given outside of academia so i'm happy to do that great and what's your what's sort of been your hit of can so far Oh, I really, really love Triangle of Sadness. Me too. I stand by this. It's such a good title. I, I, yeah. It's... And it continues the geometry theme. You know, it's got a, <laughs> gonna, it's gonna have a quadrology of, uh, you know, the square, the triangle. Yeah, it needs to go for an octagon at some point. Yeah, we are, we are. I'm, I'm there for it for sure. Uh, and it was so funny. I don't think I've laughed that much all throughout can like put together. But a lot you know. of people are saying like it's a ob quite obvious satire because it's hitting very big targets you know in a barrel but, but isn't they... that the same for every satire though you can be you can be saying that for every satire i guess yeah exactly and what's wrong with being obvious uh, no and i think the best satires are things that you know we take seriously but then we are also able to joke about it you know that of course of course i do of course a satirist <laughs> myself at times <laughs> thank you so much savina for uh for giving us your recommended book thank you john thank you for having me Dreaming one is Jeffrey o Jeffrey O'Brien's Phantom Empire. Okay. Um, which is basically, I don't even know. I actually, I taught it to students this past fall, and I um, some of the the students that I thought would hate it, like they're people who maybe like more into genre films or like right. Marvel comics or something, just absolutely adored this thing. And it's just kind of this dream vision of what movies can mean. And he mm. talks a lot about, um, oh, you know, like uh, uh, Italian horror films that he's seen that he loved. Actually, he's kind of fixated on those. Um, right, Mario Bava and, yeah, and that sort of stuff. and all that stuff. Uh, but it's just a really beautiful book and a really just kind of open-hearted and explosive. And um, I don't know, I guess off the top of my head, that's... That's one. That's, yeah. What's, what was the other one? The other one would probably be The Devil's Candy by Julie Solomon, which is a favorite of many people. Mm. Uh, just going behind the scenes of Brian De Palma's... Um, film version of Bonfire of the Vanities, which was a, you know, kind of famous flop at the time. And um, I think this book just lays out really well all the things that can go wrong 
um, against the filmmaker's best intentions. And um, and actually, I mean, the movie, in the context of today, it's not really all that bad, but no. at the time it was the, the film that everybody liked to beat up on. So, um, you know, kind of a cautionary tale. And Bruce Willis is, comes off not, not particularly well. No, yes, he doesn't. But poor Bruce Willis, we're not going to beat up on him right now. No, not, no, not anymore. <laughs> no. Not anymore. Can I ask as well, Stephanie, uh, what have you seen at Cannes? How's your Cannes going and, and what, what have been your highlights? Oh, my highlights this year, I would say, are James Gray's Armageddon Time. I love James Gray. Anyway, I love everything that he's done, so I'm kind of a James Gray nut. But this film, I thought... Um, it's really it's it's so subtle in the way it kind of explains a lot of things that have gone wrong in our country in America and um, I mean a lot about like race relations and things that we could have changed 40 years ago I mean 60 years ago 80 years ago we should have been like changing things for you know from the beginning but um, We've had so much time to yeah. try to solve some of these problems, and yet we still have some of the same problems. And I think this this film explores that in a really honest and intelligent way. And um, my other favorite is Kelly Reichert's Showing Up, which is about uh, Michelle Williams plays a, an artist, a ceramicist who has kind of like a prickly personality. She's mm. one of those people that you, you, you kind of like don't really want to be around a lot. And um, it, it's a wonderful performance. I think she, she embodies that like, you know, uh, really well. But of course, obviously you also feel something for her. And um, it's about it, being an artist. I mean, I don't know who really wants to watch a movie about people being artists. Maybe it's not that interesting, <laughs> but you know, this idea that you need solitude and you need to be kind of in, in, inside your head to mm. do something. And also the art she makes. I mean, I hope this isn't too much of a spoiler, but, you know, you see her at the beginning of the process, like making these sculptures. And you look at them and you think, oh, my God, they, these things are like actually really ugly. And then by the end, you, you're looking at them, you see them in a different way. And oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Oh, I'd love uh, to. I'm looking forward to that. That's on Friday I'm going to go and see that. So yeah. That's great. Okay, well, thank you very much. Could you tell us also uh, your full name and the publication you write for as well, so that our readers can, our listeners, I should say, can become your readers? <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm Stephanie Zaharik, and I'm the film critic at Time. Excellent. Thank you, Stephanie. Yeah, super duper. You didn't tell me you were going to do that. I know, because I knew you. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm here with Jason Solomons, who is in Canada. Uh, under what? What's your, uh, what's your current umbrella? Uh, it's, a, it's a hub more than an umbrella. It's got lots of smoke. So I am still covering the festival for the New European and for Radio 4 Front Row and for my own Seen Any Good Films Lately podcast. But this is my 25th can as a critic and presenter, but I'm also my first can as a producer, John. And I feel like a newbie 
and a fresh babe ready to be eaten up by the sharks. And because this is writers on film, we're interested in books, and, and you've got a book which you're actually look, have optioned and are looking to make into a film, is that right? That's right, yeah. So uh, this isn't strictly a film book, but it will be a book that's being made into a film by me. Uh, it's called A Waiter in Paris, and it's written by Edward Chisholm, and it actually came out in the UK while we were here. So I had it sort of at, a, at an early stage, and I completely fell in love with it as a coup de foudre. It's about a young British kid who goes to Paris dreaming of being a writer full of romantic dreams and new wave images in his head and they just get sucked into this world of this grand brasserie where he gets a job as a waiter and we find out that that, that sort of multifarious goings on behind those swing doors you're there as a tourist dining but actually back there there's a whole world of waiters that are sort of dispossessed polish aristocrats crazed drug dealers wannabe actors malaysians tamil refugees senegalese washer uppers it's, it's just fabulous world i thought full of loads of characters and i just was reading it and casting it in my head and seeing it and there's lots of little tricks about how they sort of use olive oil to wipe their shoes stick up their hair polish those trays so they come out all shining and the stuff sort of sticks to the tray so it doesn't fall over and he has to learn all of that and then he falls in love with a glamorous hostess who's way too haughty for him uh, and then there's the sort of bossy woman who does all the sort of uh, organising she's like the maitre d come madame this place then there's a sort of politician and his mistress who pop in and there's a, a director and his actress and then during fashion week there's all the sort of models and fashionistas I just thought what a fantastic world I want to make this into a film so I've asked the, the guy who's written it Ed Chisholm it's his first book um, it's a memoir actually I keep thinking of it as a fiction but it is actually a memoir this is what he actually did like George Orwell when he was down and out right I was thinking of that when you were yeah, there's a there is that, that there's a sort of Emily in Paris cheesiness to it but there's also this kind of quite gritty poverty below the line gig economy sort of situation camembert yes I would say camembert <laughs> <laughs> but with a little truffle on top yeah. but I, I mean what I love about it is that it's all in the service of this you know brasserie food so if the tourists come in and they order a crop monsieur or you know confit de canard and it's made and constructed, but there's not a single French hand that touches it by the time it gets to your plate. It, but it is a construct of this sort of French mythology and this Parisian mythology. And of course, waiters are sort of the fabric of, of Paris. If, if there's any one city in the world where you can be a career waiter, it's, it's Paris. But it's very hard to get out of it. There are these people who have been doing it for years and years, because it's quite a drunk, you know, some days you'll get like, a grand in tips and then you just go out and blow it mm. and you're sort of supposed to you're not supposed to keep your tips it's a, it's that, it, that's the joy of it so I've got, I'm, I'm thrilled that, that, uh, to be adapting I think it can be really good but, but what's really interesting this year and you might find this uh, when you're reading your books is that people five years ago they said yeah that's a movie right now they're sort of saying well it sounds like a telly sounds like a series. right it's something on Netflix exactly which I'm not against but it's not my natural Habitat. I read it and thought it was a, you know, fit, fit, felt like a movie. And and throughout, he when he goes and gets his tips, he nips off to midnight screenings and goes and sees, you know, in Paris you've got all these rep theatres. He goes and sees Melville's and he goes and sees the little Goddard seasons. So I, I knew where, where he was in his head with all of this. But yeah, people in the industry sort of say, oh, it sounds like a telly. But everyone's desperate for a telly. That's why. Yeah, I've I've had a, that a lot uh, where I've uh, pitched screenplays to people and it's like, mm, could it be a ten episode? Yeah, you know. And I think people people want it sort of in a way because it gives keeps them busy and it's sort of like right that's me done for three years <laughs> season three of that but oh, i still think there's something about movies that works i mean it, we can have a spin-off can't we afterwards but i think there's something about 
the, the sort of beginning, middle and end of a great movie. That That's how I see it. And I think that's how the book is written. And as he, as certainly Ed Chisholm, the writer, he's going to adapt the screenplay, which is quite unusual, apparently. That doesn't always work. But when I read it, I just thought, well, this guy's a screenwriter. Yeah. Uh, and it jumps off the page, the dialogue and, and, and the descriptions of Paris and the cold and the, the strange creatures that live in the sort of in, in the cheap hotels and the flop houses of Paris. You've pitched it to me. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm on board. I'll uh... <laughs> see it. Yeah. So have you managed to see any films while you've been here, while, between pitch meetings and shark sessions? Yeah, I, I have actually. I've, I've done all right. I, not as much as I normally do, hence, uh, you know, you, you filling in quite nicely. I missed the Moon Age Daydream, David Bowie doc. I did love Mia Hansen Loves and Bull Matin, One Fine Morning. It may be because I'm particularly tuned to Paris, but I just love the way she makes the everyday feel just very special she's got a real textured work and I think Leia Seydoux who was here at Cannes last year in the summer with five films and was, was a bit rubbish in all of them or all the films were rubbish I just thought she was luminous and it's just wonderful in this and I, I, I could watch her she's on the screen almost all the time uh, sometimes undressed and um, this I just thought it, it made sense for her to do it. it it was the right she's looking after her ailing father she's looking after her son because she's a single mum she starts a, quite an ill-advised affair with an old friend uh, and it, it's just the sort of and she has a job to keep down as well and it's just like a, that's what I've got to do today deal with all of that and it all comes to a head and you just say oh that's it's not easy is it life sometimes <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant I haven't seen that I've got a ticket for it tomorrow so I'm looking forward to it on that recommendation um, could I ask Jason uh, have you got a film book that you could recommend it could be something you've read recently or it can be an old favorite it's totally up to you I would What's my favourite film? It's a good question. I, I haven't been a guest on Writers on Film yet, obviously. Um, I'll tell you what I, I think is the most extraordinary film book. Um, slightly for me, is Woody Allen's Apropos of Nothing. It is his own memoir. And I would recommend it as an audio book because he, he does the reading. Right, right. Which is amazing. And it, it's fine. It's all sort of like, oh, well, I was working with Sid Caesar and then, we, then I met Keaton and we made all this. And then, and then I met Mia Farrow. Let me tell you about Mia Farrow, and he just goes off on like it's quite vicious. I mean, it's not pleasant at all. It completely changes the tone of the book and addresses the the current place where we are now with Woody being cancelled. And it's a sort of stern defence of, of of himself in this memoir. And then it sort of finishes and goes back to like, and then I met Sunyi, and it's all fine, and then I made you know nice things with Diane Weist. <laughs> It sort of carries on. But the middle of it is explosive. And to hear him, because I read it first, and then to hear him say it, I mean, it's just extraordinary. It's like it's like he's gone off on one for about 35 pages. Do, do you think it, it reads as a convincing defence? Because I've heard people say, actually, he sort of condemns himself out of his own mouth in, in, a, in his vitriol that you saw. Yeah, you, you, it's so um, hornet's nest mm. that, it, that has been stirred. And it's, it doesn't... What is funny is that... It's not funny at all. It, it, it doesn't suit him. This register, this tone... Is not the avuncular Woody that you've seen on screen or that I've interviewed several times. It's, it's something shifts in him. Mm. Uh, a steeliness comes in, an almost kind of cold-heartedness in there, and it's a really weird because he, he's so known for his warmth, his comic warmth, and his comic sort of look on humanity. Suddenly, there comes this sort of steely right. I'm gonna uh, almost almost killer mm. in there, and that's and of course Woody Allen isn't 
he isn't a, a schlemiel, he isn't a useless nebbish, otherwise he wouldn't be able to make 50 films. You know, this guy can get his films and get some of the world's biggest stars in his movies. So there, there must be something, a, a killer instinct about him. And he turns it over and he gets it done on time and on budget. It's that bit that comes out, the cold professional, almost the, there's, there's something of the assassin in that. In yeah. the, and, and in the, because he, he's such a great writer, there's not nary a word over, you know, it's very short. Like his films, they're sort of coming in at night, coming in at a nice 95 minutes, you know. And that in this, it's like bang, 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 bang. Every little point is made, and it's they're like little, little pins being in, into. I think it's an extraordinary book, really. That's fascinating. And of course, you've written your own book about Woody Allen. Have, have you any plans to 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 go back and write write about something else, or are you are you kind of do you feel kind of done with your book, <laughs> exhausted? Because of course, the timing was not great. The first book was all right, but it was okay. the second edition that right. wasn't great. That was just like, I mean, we, I was almost going to pulp it, you know, but yeah. we, we published it. it. It was ready to go in the warehouse, but it, it hasn't, hasn't, <laughs> just people weren't buying it. Although I'm, I'm getting a lot of pe- people seem to be forgetting the Woody Allen thing and they're picking it up now. People are remembering Woody Allen and, and suddenly getting some sales and people commenting, going, oh, I've just bought your book on Woody Allen. Just because I kept thinking it's going to be out of date, you know, that's why I kept mm. doing the second edition. But as it happens, quite handily, he hasn't actually made another film for a while. So it's not particularly out of date. There's a, I think there's only um, a Ready Day in New York that's not in there. Mm. Um, so I've got a bit... So there, there, there was another addendum to the Woody Allen book and that addresses this this late interest in it because that's mm. not in the book and that's why I thought I can't it's not even proper I need to talk about this in the book what this this current reassessment and that documentary that um, uh, what's his name Bob the guy did sick but they, they made and that was the one that really sort of put the cat among the pigeons and they they used the audio book actually because mm. Woody obviously wouldn't give them an interview so they went right well we're going to take some of the audio from the audio book of Apropos of Nothing and, and use that mm. I don't think is right but it, it certainly sounds like, like they've interviewed him right right without actually necessarily saying yeah. this is from the audio book yeah, exactly. it's really cheap i think yeah but it's, a, it's a cheap shop but it hits right it hits. right so uh, yes i'm i'm i was writing uh, a book during the pandemic about how the pandemic has changed movies mm. um and it was quite interesting while i was doing it and there's some nice writing in it but when i came to when the pandemic was lifting I came to reread it back and thought, I don't want to read any- I don't want to read anything about the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I was talking to a director today who says, Oh, my new documentary is coming out. I was like, What is it about? It's about the pandemic in Georgia. And it's like, uh, uh. It feels irrelevant. It may not do. I thought it needs documenting, but it was about the delay of Bond. And it just all felt like, Well, we've we survived and it's all right. But I think I will revisit it and, and retool it. It's, it, it. it's sort of a memoir in movies. Uh, because I was sort of stopping being more of a critic and trying to move to production. And I thought, well, I should sort of remember my 25 years as a critic. Um, but it needed more structure. It needs more structure. But there will be one coming. Oh, me. brilliant. And then, and then you'll come on. I mean, you, you can come on and talk about Woody whenever you like, but I'm not pushed because I thought maybe it's a sore subject, maybe. No, no, we were going to do it, weren't we, in, um, yeah. last summer. And then, then, and then I started writing this other one, and, and that got in the way. So, no, I'm still... It's sort of an ongoing saga, the Woody thing, that's right. No, I'd, I'd be fascinated to talk to you in more depth about Woody Allen film by film. Yeah, absolutely, and I'd love to have you on. Thanks so much, Jason. Salut, John. <laughs> now we're going to move on to the section where uh, a couple of listeners volunteered to give me their recommended books. I'm extremely lucky that among my listenership as such... 
Uh, well, I have lots of people who themselves are writers, and who themselves are involved in the film industry in one way or another. And so um, it's really good to have their insights. Uh, Kai Ross, who has a podcast, which we talk about, and Ian Killick, who uh, also works as a film lecturer and as a, uh, a film director and editor himself. Uh, so I hope you enjoy our, our conversation. Well, yes, yes. Uh, hey, you guys. Bless them were the first ones to um, to say yes uh, and not stop and leave us alone. Um, Cinema Retro, which is another lovely mag, um, Screen Magazine, and a few other things. I mean, I have a restaurant as well, which kind of takes up the bulk of the time and is slightly unforgiving in its uh, uh, writing sh- writing schedule allowance. Anyway, but uh, mm. yeah. What, what's the, the name of the restaurant so that we can uh, we can channel funnel some uh, writers on <laughs> writers on film patrons in that direction. Writers on film listeners get a one percent discount. Whoa! <laughs> which is then added onto the bill afterwards. Sort of, uh, yeah, Paysan uh, in North Wales, Deganway, North Wales. Oh, brilliant! Oh, wow! I used to well, I didn't go that often to North Wales, but Crickyuff was a place I would go to. Yes, uh, on the coast. You were just around the corner from Port Merion. Mm, yeah, exactly. Which I never went to, even though I'm a huge uh, Prisoners fan. And of course, you run a, you present a podcast on the Prisoner, right? Free for all. Yes, free for all. Yeah, um, uh, with uh, my estimable chum uh, Chris Bainbridge as well. And that's been that's been in- immense fun. How long have you been uh, doing that for? I think it was about December last year it started. So it's uh, we've gone through all 17 episodes. Occasionally, occasionally 70 episodes. You. you been chatting for an hour and you realize you've only just got past the uh, the opening credits so a few of them have stretched out but it's 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 coming to its its end we've already done fallout and um that took three episodes to get through gads right uh, yeah yeah i mean god there's so much in that episode as well it's so uh i i think it, it felt to me like the series got to a point where it was it's a little bit like lost there's a certain yeah. le- level of puzzledom that um <laughs> You you basically painted yourself into a corner. There's no way out. Oh yeah, I mean it stops. I think for the last two episodes, it essentially stopped being a spy drama of any description and just mm. became a, a pure allegory, um, which is great um, for, uh, for if you. Well, it's just limitless interpretations. Uh, but anyone waiting for the sort of bit where he pulls out the gun and gets tied to a table with a laser is just thinking, why? The, what the hell is going on? People in gorilla uh, suits and uh, you know. yeah, well, I don't get it. But uh, but at the same time, it's just it, you know you can you can interpret it any way you can, which is it's kind of one of the ways. I say has dated some of the sort of sixtiesness of it, but really, it, I mean, particularly watching it on the new Blu-ray uh, pin sharp transfer, and you think this this is this could have come out. Yeah, a few hairstyles notwithstanding, this this has lasted spectacularly well. Mm, mm, yeah, have you read um, Alex Cox's book on on the uh, prisoner? Because he has a sort of he has a real unifying field theory of the whole thing, which uh, is kind of fascinating, but <laughs> yeah, but, but wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that maybe. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it, it was a great. I mean, he brings that sort of Coxian sort of. Uh, uh, will view to all the episodes, and it's a great episode guide, but it sort of builds to this big sort of reveal, which is I think he was a rocket scientist. Mm. Yeah. Um, is that it? I thought it was, I, thought, I really thought it'd be something else. 
Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, it's a British nuclear war, uh, nuclear weapon program, isn't it? That he he thinks of as the the thing that ties it all together, and it's like yeah, oh, okay. yeah. But um, then you know, you can you can say, well, why not? You know, it, it could it could be. There's McGowan was spectacularly gnomic in his later years. He kind of very even when he was doing interviews, he'd completely contradict himself. Mm. Uh, he left no breadcrumb trail, so you know if he thinks it's a, it, there's nothing to say it isn't really. There's no sort of definite answer. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. got people tearing each other's hair out on Twitter about it. Though, have you have you <laughs> had have you had a lot of like blowback to to the on the series? Not blowback. I mean reaction. I guess blowback sounds too negative. Yeah. Um, no, it's been incredibly um, um, satisfying. Mm. It's been lovely. The feedback's been um, really great, really warm. You've kind of found yourself in a nice, uh, just a community of, of people who are just really, have, the, the feedback's been enormously kind. Mm. Uh, and you've made some sort of, you know, on Twitter, you can make sort of genuine pals in a mm. way. Um, and it's been it's been lovely. There hasn't been any, excuse me, I think you'll find there's been none of that sort of gatekeeperish nonsense <laughs> which can well, make these... You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I love the uh, as as well that you use the word uh, community rather than fandom because I fandom has just become so poisonous and and community. It's, yeah, we all like the same thing, but we don't have to necessarily have the same ideological slant to everything. You know? No, no, no. But it's uh, it's been it's been really really good actually. And some of the the guys we've had on people like Robert Fairclough, who's a really good. Uh, he's written probably the best sort of definitive kind of guide to the prisoner. Mm. He's been very supportive and good fun, and uh, some of the guys from the fan club, the Six of One, and uh, <laughs> Darren Nesbitt. Do you remember right, him from Where right. Eagles Dare? Yes, yes. Yes. Wow. Wow. Because there's only that's the thing. The problem with it, you go, well, who should we interview? There are three surviving members, and uh, wait a second, he was like the the blonde Nazi with the thick lips. In and Where Eagles Dare, yeah. Yes. Yes. My Gets, God. Uh, takes one in the head after that spectacularly long sort of writing a name on the pad scene yeah yeah my word but he was uh he was great yeah he, he, he had a few richard burton anecdotes which was sort of kind of what you'd expect um but uh he was great fun incredibly foul mouth we had to sort of just i've never had to bleep <laughs> <laughs> so much and jane merrow um, who I mean, she was in. The, I remember the Line of Winter. She was in a few sort of quite big films, but she right. was also. Do you remember the schizoid man? Peter O'Toole and uh, Anthony Hopkins. Line in Winter. Peter right? O'Toole. Yes. Yes. Um, I don't like she... my children. <laughs> which is actually from uh, which is actually from Beckett. There's a bit in Beckett where uh, his wife says, "But think of your children," and he goes, "I don't like my children." <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's like okay, okay, that's an alternative. <laughs> you know, I know it's in a movie and everything, but I get a feeling that's just Peter O'Toole telling you about his family. <laughs> yeah. All oh, right, I don't know where I summoned that up from. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's playing the same king, wasn't he? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's uh, it's just later on. It's kind of like a. It's one of those weird films where it's kind of historically a sequel, but but not uh, it not generically not a sequel you know yes henry yes henry the two henry the second three yes exactly <laughs> yes yeah 
And so you had her on as the uh, um, to to talk to as well. Yeah, she was in a, an episode of The Schizoid Man, which is the one where they do the wonderful. I think almost all sixties shows did this at some point. The leading actor plays against the leading actor using amazing split screen technology. Yeah, I remember involves... some Star Trek. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which always involves us sort of facing each other in profile. Yeah, at some point. Uh, and then sort of two of them having to walk towards a door while the stuntman looks away from the uh, the camera. Uh, but she was she was delightful. Again, this is the thing. So you ask these people, and you say, oh, God, this must be the last that they want to do. Please talk to the, some stranger about the prisoner again. But uh, mm. no, they all did it willingly. were delightful. Uh, and it's been a, just a, an immensely gratifying experience, really. That's amazing. That's That's really good. I'm really pleased. Uh, that you're doing this as well, because the the oh, there's Ian Killick coming into the waiting room. Let's admit him as well. Indeed, um, oh, I love having Zoom where you have a waiting room where you can sort of like. Yeah, no, you should have a serve canapes option. Yeah, while he's waiting in the waiting room. Absolutely, leaving <laughs> through drinks. magazines, leaving yeah. through like old copies of uh, of sort of family <laughs> magazines and Radio Times and such. Oh, well, hi. looking. Hi, Ian. Can you can you hear me? Hi. Yeah, I can hear you fine. Hello, John. Hi. Uh, Kai's with us as well. Uh, I'm not Hello, sure Ian. If, if you Hi, know Kai. Kai. Kai's brought his own beer as well, which is making him feel a bit thirsty. I'm going to have to pop oh, wow. and grab okay. a beer. Oh, I, I didn't realise it was that sort of event. So <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that's, as, that's as racy as it gets. Excellent. <laughs> I, have, I have just finished work, though, so I've... Uh, ah, myself... well, yes, it seems appropriate, then. Have you guys been uh, listening to the podcast, like, from the beginning, or what's your... Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I I think so. Yeah, because I was thinking about this before I joined you. I was thinking, how long has it been going? And I, in my mind, I would say it's been a year. Mm. So I, I'm guessing I was there fairly early, I would yeah. say. Yeah. You're a, a writer as well, Ian. Is that right? Very, very occasionally, yeah. Mm. I, I, I do, I, I think like a lot of us, I do a number of things. So I, I probably lecture for about maybe four to six months of the year, give or, mm. take, uh, give or take. Um, but the rest of the time, I earn sort of a lot of my other money from editing, and occasionally, because it's an expensive business, but occasionally writing and directing. So, um, right. so yeah, probably maybe one shorter year I get to do. But the rest of the time, I'm editing other people's material, and then I teach film editing uh, in, in some of the universities in London. Wow, because I'm I'm just reading the Michael Ondaatje, Walter Murch book, The Conversations. Which, oh, it's very good. Yeah, uh, it's so good. I mean, I mm. have to. I, I stole a story that he does for a tweet earlier on, where he's talking about George Lucas making Star Wars because he couldn't make Apocalypse Now, which I just think is wow. That's so interesting that mm. how Star Wars is being critical. Don't ruin my childhood, you know, with all this <laughs> political shenanigans. What you mean the Vietnam allegory? <laughs> you mean that that innocent fable? You know, with the Lenny Reifen style ending, but you know, oh, let's, yeah. not, let's, not talk, <laughs> let's not talk about that. Um, so, when you're doing editing, you're, are you editing like uh, work for studios, or what, what sort of work are you doing? Not, no, I've actually only been doing it fairly recently. It's oh. one, I, I've kind of done the, the career backwards. A lot of people sort of do the creative industries and then start lecturing as things wind down. I was, I was lecturing first for the full time. And uh, it was always teaching filmmaking, but then I stopped doing it full time when I was about 45, give or take 50. Mm. 
And then it was a case of, well, you've kind of been teaching this for ages, but just get out and do it. And I've been very fortunate. It did, I think maybe living in London helps. Um, so at the moment, I'm kind of still sort of actually in the ascent. I've only been doing it for sort of four or five years. Oh, so at the moment, I'm doing short films mostly and occasional sort of adverts, um, a couple of little bits for BBC ideas. and But it's mostly sort of short films and marketing work that seems to be where a lot of the money is. So I'm, I'm still fairly new to it, um, and I've come close to doing a couple of features, but occasionally, um, you you know, it, it, I think when one's quite new to it, you, you you don't maybe always get stuff that kind of you want to cut. So at yeah. the moment, I'm hovering around. Well, should I really commit two months or three months to do that? Um, so yeah, at the moment, it's sort of very sort of low budget, um, sort of independently financed shorts, but the money's in in marketing really. So yeah, mm. sort of, so um, but but again, I've been fortunate. The work came in. I got one lucky job, and then that got passed around, and you know, sort of off you go. Yeah. Jonathan Glazer, was it Jonathan Glazer or who was it? Oh no, the guy who did, um, was it Vincenzo Natale? It was somebody who was talking about directing films and it basically said, I have to take a pay cut. If hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f***? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. I want to direct a feature film because sure. it, it yeah, take, yeah. takes me out for a year, and I would earn yeah. much more that year if I was just directing my adverts and my pop videos and whatnot, you know? Mm. No, it's very true. I mean, there's a fascinating book I'd recommend called, well, fascinating, stroke depressing, called Dark Matters. Mm. Very good book written by, I, gee, I can't you know, it's written during the lockdown and it's interviews with directors, but specifically who still live in London. So he's interviewing Jonah Hogg and, mm. sorry, I say live in London. Maybe they're British based, but it's Jonah Hogg, Andrew Arnold and Peter Strickland. And pretty much they all say to a person, you know, yeah, unless you're Chris Nolan or you're Edgar Wright and Ridley Scott and you go to American money, you you won't make money, you know, mm. in, in London. And and not enough, Peter Strickland was, was, of all of them, a lot of them were quite cagey actually about where they get their money from. <laughs> you know, it's often, it, you, felt the, you felt the family and friends element kicking in. But Strickland was fascinating. And I said, forgive me if I don't know the exact details, but he was saying, probably over 10 years, he said he could add up, you know, what he's earned actually in terms of money from that. He said it's probably about 36,000 pounds, right. something like that. Forgive right. so the exact figures. I don't want to sort of be sort of sued by uh, Chris, uh, Peter Strickland, but it's something very low. It was something that he went, oh, wow, I, I didn't, oh, yeah. And um, so he does it for the love of it. And I think other times he writes and he teaches, I think, and other things kick in. But it was a fascinating reminder of, no, you know, you, you won't in Britain make money from doing it. 
Yeah, he reminds me a little bit what um, uh, Pat McGilligan was talking about when he was talking about writing biographies, that he sort of said, you, you don't make money off any individual book, but if you build up a body of work, then at a certain point you reach a tipping point and you find, oh, you're actually getting enough royalties to be a professional writer. Mm. But, but if you think I'm going to publish one book and that's it, it's you're you're on a hiding to nothing. Oh yeah, um, um, very much so. Yeah. And idiot that I am, I said, okay, I'll write a book for you. <laughs> <laughs> With that encouragement in mind, I'll, I'll yeah, do that. Yeah, yeah. It's um, never stopped us. No, it that, doesn't stop us doing it. You know. Do you, Do you get your kit from like from from like your teaching job, or do you just get? Well, yeah, yeah. So, again, I suppose as a self-employed person, you know, you have to get things like Avid Media Composer, which I probably prefer cutting on Premiere Pro. But obviously, you use that as part of your, you know, uh, you, you claim against that at the end of the year. So, no, it'd be lovely if we got those kind of resources. <laughs> but no, you you kind of have to be a, a sort of a one-man band. But you just you claim it back, I guess, uh, at the end of the year. Um, but when it comes to sort of filmmaking, if I'm directing. Yeah, you know, you're using rental houses in London uh, just to hire hire all the stuff, I guess. Yeah, and uh, it's uh, as you say, I think I've done. I've certainly lost money on every short I've made. <laughs> you, you know, you you do it. You, I think it's one of the things I lecture. So I'm gonna I'm gonna steal a phrase now. I'm gonna steal it from George Lucas. Mm. So this is he, so I only direct sometimes. So I've got something I want to edit, and oh. I only I only write so as I can have something to direct which is something that he said to Paul Hirsch, I think, um, when he, they were cutting Star Wars. And I think there's something in that. So I, I do like lecturing, particularly because it is about film editing. So it, it is a privilege to be able to just talk about film editing. But, mm. but a lot of it pays then for the privilege to, to make a short film. And then I I grab whatever editing work I can to sort of supplement it. So, yeah, so it's definitely the tail wags the dog, yeah. Mm -hmm. God, that's so interesting, especially when you think of people like Strickland and Joanna Hogg and you think, oh, you guys have arrived, you're here, you're, mm -hmm. you know, you're mm -hmm. going to be invited to every festival and all the rest of it. And then, you know, they basically have to have a day job. Uh, there was, yeah. what was the name of the, Kelly Reichard? There was a, a, a sort oh, of story in, yeah. in uh, on Twitter that I read where it was saying, like, she has to have a teaching job. She, she has does, to have yeah. a day she job. She lectures, yeah. yeah. And I think she actually lectures kind of full time, I think, as well. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Mark Jenkin, you know, who does Ennis Men and Bates. Yeah. Um, he teaches still at the University of Cornwall, I think, or maybe Devon. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, you know, and he's made it. You know, we you know, guy's been at Cannes for you know, but uh, yeah, I interviewed him this this year. I yeah. was uh, I interviewed him after Ennis Men, um, Ennis Main, Ennis Men. Yes, it's pronounced mm. Men, isn't it? The uh, the it's because it's a, the word is for an island. It's Cornish for island, mm. apparently. What about you, Kai? Have you uh, ever sort of gone into on the other side of the camera, sort of? Oh, uh, directing. Yeah, yeah. Ah, no, no, no. I've, I've well. I, I, I studied script writing in university in, in the 90, late 90s mm -hmm. and then made the brilliant decision to um, to go back home to North Wales and sort of, I, I should have, I was, I was working for Channel 4 before, I should have just gone, this is regrets, I've had a few. Mm. <laughs> should have gone basically straight back down to London, but I, I stuck around and I, I sold a couple of scripts straight off the bat, which was wonderful. And then got it into my head somehow that, uh, well, the internet's just arrived. I can do everything by email now and I can just stay up here. And then um, 
you know how it is. I think if you if you sell a script, they still give you the option, and you get paid for rewrites. But the, the bulk of it turns up when they they film it. First week um, of principal photography. Yep, yeah, uh, which never came. Right. Uh, we had a we had a sort of a read through with all the cast. I think Rob Brydon was there. He was going to play the the lead. I was like, you better take September off and October because I think that's. Um... And then it just didn't happen. Meanwhile, I was kind of. I think I have to get a credit card to cover some stuff here, and I ended up sort of taking over the restaurant from my parents. Yeah, you know, for for the six months I thought it would take to get it back on, and that was nineteen years ago. So you're right, right. Yeah, Which I, is, it's, I wouldn't advise taking a restaurant if you want to do anything else. So it's, um, a little bit it hogs your time. Yeah, I can. I it, yeah, it's it's not exactly like you've got a lot of free time either side of that for, as you say, writing or or pursuing other interests. Yes, but I mean, I've I've got enough time to. I mean, working on a script now with somebody else's kind of input that would be quite interesting. So you you do have a time management if you can block it off. Um, but just kind of using contacts you've made over the years to maybe sort of nudge stuff further than just sending stuff blindly to a a production company, which I think is kind of like trying to attract the attention of a passenger plane by flicking elastic bands at it from the ground. What a brilliant image. What a beautiful image. I'm going to steal that. Consider that stolen. I think I stole it from a friend of mine. So, yes, it's it's doing doing the rounds. At some point, it's going to arrive back at you and you'll uh, you'll like a boomerang cliche sort of thing. Not cliche, better than a cliche. Um, what about uh, what films have you uh, been sort of seen recently that, that ha- I'm sort of thinking not even recently, but just this year? Has there been anything that you've watched that uh, has stood out particularly? Yeah. Oh, goodness. I mean, it's, I think it's been a really good year, as, as the last couple have been. And um, I think some standouts for me, The Innocence, which I enjoyed enormously, Um and the quiet girl i thought was good uh, compartment number six i think oh, definitely very good film um, yeah. that 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 I, I genuinely was you know it's the thing you want from a film I, I came out moved and i and i felt the characters i felt every beat of it and uh, i thought it's just a wonderful uh, the thing i enjoy more than anything is those sort of you know films you know what does it mean to be human and, and it means being flawed but forgiving and, and i thought compartment number six was fantastic worst person in the world um i think would be high up there and i think i'm particularly amazed you know that the chap who wrote or was the co-writer i think of worst person in the world also wrote and directed the innocence and you think that, that's a rare talent um so i'm probably going to put those two because I think for the fact that one person can write both of those, and they're such incredibly different films. Um, but for me, The Innocence, I think, is near the top, purely because it's such stripped-down cinema that the concept is so simple. But every scene is, um, I think, particularly because I'm fascinated with editing, but every scene is just maximised in terms of suspense. It's one of the most slowest-built films of dread I've seen. So, uh, yeah, The Innocence would be very high up, I, I think, for me. Yeah, it's a real slow burn without being mm. a, being a slow movie I, as well. That's the thing, which yeah, is a, yeah. A real trick to pull. Yeah, that's a very good way of putting it. It's not slow, but it's a slow. Yeah, and that, and that because some films are slow burns, but they're just slow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that's that's a that's a wonderful way of putting it. And so yeah, that's probably very high up for me. That film that's going to have another rewatch, I think. So 
Yeah, I remember watching Compartment 6 and at the very beginning really hating it, thinking like the f in the first 10, 20 minutes I was just thinking, God, this guy's so awful and I can I know where this is going to go, but I don't know how the hell it's going to get there because this guy's such an idiot. And then um, and then it worked. It managed to it managed to do exactly that. Um, and there was a bit where I realised, oh wait, it's not a love story. It's um, it's like lost brothers and a uh, lost brother and sister coming mm. together. You know, it's it, it's about friendship. And I really like films which are about friendship, which really value friendship rather than think, well, it's second best. You know, like. Um, you know, it, uh, friendship isn't a failed romance. It's mm. it's a thing in, in and of itself, you know. It's a very good thing you say, because I do remember, now you say it, I'd forgotten that, but I definitely found it a bit annoying, because I thought there's there's no way a woman, e even back then, you know, to set 30-odd uh, years ago or something, even then, no one would tolerate anyone that annoying. Why doesn't she just go away? And but after something, something definitely clicked after 20 minutes, and that was it. I, I just, I'd, that wonderful moment in the cinema where you lose sense of space and time and the walls around you. Yeah, you're just, you're in the screen. But yeah, 20 minutes, that's interesting. I, I was quite annoyed by her for just allowing him to carry on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, and I thought, this is ridiculous. Come on, we say something. But then her power was the way she dealt with him. And it just, it was fascinating for Fascinating. Yeah, uh, it's uh, Yuri uh, Borisov. Uh, the guy who plays the, uh, I think that's him. I think that's Yuri Borisov. Is a guy who plays the the lead because uh, he was in a whole bunch of films that year. Uh, because it's, um, I remember seeing it. I think I saw it last year, and it was uh, he was in that, and he was in Petrov's Flu, and he was in. There's a Russian film about such and such a person, Colonel So and So has gone missing or something. Um, it had that, and and it just really made you think. Wow, this guy—he can do everything. He's he's just ama mm -hmm. amazing in everything. Um, uh, and it's his. It's yeah. I mean, it's not the worst side effect of the Ukraine Russian invasion, but it does make you feel. Wow, that guy's career is is gonna is gonna go in a different direction now, or mm -hmm. it's gonna be it's gonna be stalled because internationally he was really making his name. Um, yeah. Yes. Very sad. Yeah. What about what about you, Kai? Um, well, to my great shame, um, mainly because of the, sort of the hours I keep, I don't really sort of get. I've, of late, I've not been able to to see much really. Um, I saw uh, last Sunday. I saw Licorice Pizza for the first time. Oh mm. wow! A bit late and after that, and I I was I was kind of I was very impressed by it eventually. Because I, I thought, is this kind of slight or is it me? And then I sort of, it started to just, in, in I, c I couldn't get it out of my head. It started, some of the films kind of go to work on you a little bit after you've seen them. And I started realising just how effective it was and how 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 delightful I thought the actors were. I hadn't even realised it was Philip Seymour Hoffman's son as well. I'd forgotten that. Yeah, there was a, like James Gandolfini's son was in The Last Saints of Newark uh, the same year. Yes. So it was like... Almost, but is this a thing now that we've got? We're having sort of the sons of dead actors turn up everywhere. <laughs> is that was that? I've, I just heard nothing but kind of three star reviews for that. It seemed to be sort of many saints. Yeah, yes. it, it was. It fully deserved those three star reviews. It wasn't. It wasn't good. It was. It was a. If it was an episode, if it was a bottle episode of The Sopranos, you would have been going, "What the." What's this? You know, because it, it it was hitting very similar beats of sort of misogyny and you know um, 
but without the it wasn't convincing it didn't it felt very much like a retread it didn't feel like anything particularly you know necessary and i was really hyped for it i thought it was going to be great you know but yeah no it just didn't do it for me it felt felt very like a tv movie which i guess is what what it ended up being yeah i guess i suppose it's um i've I've also i mean it's it's a continuation of lockdown really so trying to Fit, uh, fill in missing pieces in my sort of history. I've been on a bit of an Alan Delon binge, and I've uh, all these things that you think, oh, like the Samurai, the first time I've seen it, oh, for man. crying out loud. I should, I, should, I should have seen that when I was 16. Um, and then you, that bumps, then so you, you, you watch that and you think, you do a bit of research and you think, ah, flick, I'll try a bit of that. Somebody put me onto the Circle of Rouge. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy did the podcast with about the uh, Gallo. Dark Matters, I forget his name, but he put me onto Le Cirque Rouge. Uh, so yeah, it's it's more a bit of that. So to my to my great shame, I've got a big lot of stacked up. Uh, I really want to see the Souvenir Part Two. That's that's ready to to go. But also, I'm sort of kind of cursed with the unavailability of. Uh, I've only got the one cinema, mm. which usually mm. has the one Marvel film on eighteen available screens. Right, and uh, and and Downton Abbey. I mean, there's always spoons in the restaurant which you can use to gouge your eyes out if you uh, if you want an alternative. That, uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, a licorice pizza I loved. I, I went to see that. I was in a, f- a film festival in Norway, and there was uh, a late night, late-ish sort of ten thirty. I mean, let's face it, in Norway in winter, 3.30 is late. But it was like a, a 10.30 screening, and I was tired, and I said to a guy I was with, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. And he went, no, you, you haven't seen it. You go and watch it, because I, I guarantee you, the minute it starts, you'll forget what time it is, and you'll just go through the whole film with a smile on your face. And, mm. and I did, and there were there are scenes in that where I think I've never seen this before. Like the, the you know driving the truck without reversing the truck without petrol down the hills i just think how is that like an it's like an action set piece in a coming of age (laughs) story and it's just perfect i'd love to get your uh, opinion on this ian in terms of the editing and everything because that just feels masterful to me as a as a set piece you know um, well, I, I, Paul Thomas Anderson, editing, uh, yeah, um, a, a huge fan since, oh, goodness, was it? I think I saw his first film, Hard Eight, and then Boogie mm. Nights and Magnolia. No, sorry, Boogie Nights saw first, then Hard Eight and Magnolia. But um, I, I don't know if he has his longtime collaborator still in there, but Dylan Tishnor usually edit, edits all of his stuff. And the editing is absolutely it's just incredible. It, it's the thing you want more than anything, which is every cut is motivated by the emotion you know and um that sounds odd but whether the emotion is the movement of a truck that's still an emotional moment it's a thing and dylan tishnell's editing again i'm 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 very reluctant to start googling stuff now whilst we're doing this so i don't know if dylan tishnell still does um, but i'll I'll, I'll do it for you i'll let you do it but i've long (laughs) been a fan of the editing of paul time and again particularly dylan tishnell stuff i think the editing in there'll be blood and Phantom Thread is some of the best I've ever seen. Uh, I, I think he's he, absolute masterclass in cutting, particularly in There'll Be Blood. He, he, he takes something where clearly Daniel Day-Lewis has all of the dialogue, 
but he actually spends most of his time cutting away to Vicky Kreeps and cutting away to, uh, oh goodness, I forget the other woman's name. That's terrible. Thank you, one of our greatest actors. So he spends most of the time cutting to their reactions. So you, you're kind of getting their reactions, but you're hearing Day Lewis at the same time. So they actually become the women's scenes instead of oh. Day Lewis's. And so he, he's, yeah. So I think he's very good at point. I suppose in summary, yeah, I think Thomas Anderson is just very good at point of view. He's very good at placing exactly whose moment this is and who who we should be feeling as an audience. Um, so no, I'm a, I've long been a fan, long been a fan. Yeah. 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 It's Andy Jurgensen. Oh, right. Interesting. Yeah. I'm always fascinated. Um, cause again, particularly cause editing is just the thing I grew up with. I used to read all those photo play books in the seventies of alien and psycho. I just read all the, the little pic. And so I learned grammar of film quite, quite young. And, um, I'm always fascinated, particularly when an editor has been with somebody for such a long time, but then suddenly they're not. You know, like Chris Nolan has had an editor all the way through. I think every one of his films. And then he used Jennifer Lane mm. for Tenet. Now, Jennifer Lane did, you know, Marriage Story and Francis Hart and Hereditary. What, what was possibly... It, I mean, I love her work. I think she's a genius. But what, I always say, what was it that suddenly happened where Chris Nolan went, right, I'm making this incredibly uh, big, big esoteric, didn't work for me, I have to say, uh, film. Mm. I'll use Jennifer Lane. She's the... Per- just find, I find it odd. I, I find it fascinating where the person I've used for so long did they did they have a row or um, mm. yeah. I, I'm, I'm, it's again for me. I don't think I'll ever write a book, but if I did, it would be on partnerships between editors and directors. Oh, and, write that book! Mm, write yeah. that book! That sounds like a fascinating idea. Yeah, um, but I'm fascinated what what happened to Dylan Tishnar, who just worked with him so long, and then obviously I think I mean I think his career is doing really well, but um, um, don't know what happened there. But it was interesting about that is the editing is still a very good in, in inherent vice. It, it, it's a reminder that as an editor, we have to sort of reminder that it's it is a collaboration. It's the director's film as well. You know that could be as responsible for those cuts as the editor is. You know, so you, you have to sort of bear that in mind. It's hard to know where the input of the editor begins and the director stops. You know. Um, but yeah, uh, one day I'll write that book. I will do. It. I'll put- <laughs> I mean, I, I I think Sally Menke were, was a huge loss. I mean, it was a huge loss oh, to her family yes, and her career yeah. and everything. But Quentin Tarantino's films, you de- there's a definite you know before oh, yes. before oh, yes. Menke dies yeah, and then yeah, after. Yeah. And I, she, it feels like that there's no that he Tarantino no longer has a really strong voice. Again, mm. that, that sort of battles with him. That that's you know his indulgence just sweeps over his, his the films that she hasn't cut. Yeah, I, I think mm. some truth now. I think Raskin's a very muscular director. He's very good at oh. impact, but I think Sally Mink was better at rhythm. You know, she oh. she could even if I've sometimes had problems with the overall narrative of Tarantino's. I think Sally Mink. You know, if you look at the bar the bar seller scene in Inglourious Bastards. It is a masterclass of rhythm and pacing, you know, absolutely faultless. And although yeah. I still enjoy Raskin's work, I've not seen that quality quite to the same level since he's picked up the reins. Mm. As good yeah. as it is, you know, it still is. But, uh, yeah. Can I ask you, Ian, just as a, as a, 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 a curiosity, how much, should, when, when, a, when a, a film is actually being edited, how much is there actually a director and editor basically sitting in the same room situation? Um... 
a lot less well it depends on the director really i've i've had occasions uh, and again i really i've only done sort of shorts at the moment um but on the occasions i do do them it's 50 50 you know so i've had them sitting right next to me and calling the shots as it were uh i've had them sometimes leave me alone for four or five days then they'll watch the cut and then they give you a load of notes and then they'll, they'll say right can you do these notes for me and then you you come back so it really depends on the nature of the director. They're all, they're all, they all seem to be very different. Um, certainly, yeah. you know, rumor has it Oliver Stone just never sets foot in the edit suite. Just no, trust you, off you go, and, and barely ever sets his head in the door. Um, whereas some of them will be there pretty much all the time. So it's fifty-fifty, really. Um, I, I like a bit of both. You know, I think because as editors, you'd like to sort of sometimes. I think sometimes they can, and I'm guilty of it. You can kind of fall prey to a bit of arrogance. I know the answers to all of these things. Leave it I'll to me. Save this. I can save this. But actually, when I was doing it today, I had a meet, I had a, an online, you know, I'm editing an advert at the moment and we had an hour with the director and his ideas were great, you know, and it's actually nice to hear that because you sometimes can, can be quite an isolated part of the process. So um, I think when they're really great directors, I love being with them and, and kicking it back and forward you know it's a very nice thing to do but when it's worse is they kind of just sit next to you and actually get you to press every edit they want oh. and so you're kind of a technician really but but still hey it's good work you know it's, it's never turn it down there's a there's a book i read called uh dream repairman adventures in film editing by uh jim clark who's an editor who's done a whole bunch of uh, famous films, James Bond films, and uh, I think Midnight Cowboy was one of the first films he worked on. And the whole premise of the book, it's, a, it's an entertaining book and everything, but the whole premise of the book is him receiving the film, uh, from the title, Dream Repairman, him receiving mm. the film and going, what the, what's this shit? What a load of rubbish. Oh, okay, here I go, and fixing it. And it, it, so it's like, you know, I think he edited The Sorcerer, the William Friedkin film. Oh, wow. And him <laughs> saying, uh, you know, it was rubbish. It was absolutely, you know, you couldn't make head in the tail of it and i managed to put something together which could be screened and mm. um one of the james bond films he remember i remember he's just so snarky this guy um he said oh yeah and the theme music was by a band called garbage which was absolutely literally true <laughs> it's all like come on yeah. man come on man steady on steady on yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. we're there to support the process you know as best as we can it's, uh... <laughs> yeah yeah he, he seemed to sort of like very much think I mean and I've just uh, read the uh, Glenn Frankel book about Midnight Cowboy and yeah there was definitely some saving of that film in the editing oh, suite, but yeah um but there was a great film there <laughs> to be found it wasn't yeah. like it was yeah. a pile yeah. of rubbish yeah yeah no no i i've heard that occasionally and um yeah you know you, you have to sort of temper your thoughts really because it, it it again i've not been doing it for very long and i'm still fairly new to it but the six or eight shorts i've cut you know yeah the director's in a very sensitive place you know they've spent their money and they have you know they've put their love into it and you have to sit there and say oh this is a no you you I think, as David Geffen said, you know, you could think it, but don't say it. You know, so. <laughs> yeah. Least said, soonest mended. That's it. Yeah, you want to be hired again. That's always my view. So. Yeah, every job is is the, a step a step to the next job. The next one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, um, Kai, what about um, a, a recommended film book from you? What uh, film book have you read that you... That... I think I have listened to every single one of the, the podcasts and... Yes. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm amazed. No, no one has actually said Adventures in the Screen Trade. Mm. Mm, good call. I, I, can, I, I kind of thought, <laughs> well, at some point, somebody's surely going to say this. Um, but I mean, I, it's, it's kind of strange because it's, it's, it's written about 82. So all these references to, well, this summer, Rocky Three will be coming out. And here's my views on that. And it's, uh, it's kind of early 80s thing. But everything he says in there is it, nothing's changed at all. Um, and it's, and I quite like it from a sort of like writer's point of view that at the end of the sort of the, the last third, and I think it's, he does the same thing with What Lie Did I Tell? He kind of wrote a sort of sequel to mm. to this, where there's, there's almost like a, a, an exercise in how to write scripts, and the, here's the feedback I got. And, um, but it's, it, it's quite an interesting um, book about how to write, not so much in terms of getting the act structure right and how to manipulate dialogue or anything like that, but more like how to please. You're gonna, here's what the star is going to say when he reads this. He will say, I'm not here to discover this. I already know. Rewrite, please. Mm, and all mm. that. And of course, the, the anecdotes are hilarious. It's kind of it's from the same sort of you'll never eat lunch in this town again sort of vibe. Mm. But I mean, that was one of the first ones and I, I thought, I, I, it's one of the first ones that really got me into books about films. And it previously had been sort of novelizations with 24 color illustrations in the middle. And then sort of the paperbacks about sort of about how films were, and then getting to maybe sort of Barry Norman books, and and it started to build and build. But for the, for some reason, I think the Adventures in the Screen Trade was the first one. I kind of, it was like a, a step up suddenly, and then yeah. sort of you're in you're into different territory then, and then suddenly the long march to to Peter Biskin and that sort of thing. But uh, that, yeah, that only because nobody else has picked it. I'm, I'm going to throw that one onto the splendid pile. Yeah, he's superb. I love William Goldman. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really surprising omission that actually. Yeah, and it, does he do? It's maybe it's in the sequel that he actually writes a screenplay for for a director and has the director um, criticize it, say no, this yeah. this is uh, you know he writes something like the you know exterior a heartbreakingly beautiful day and the director's going yeah. how how the fuck am I supposed to do that <laughs> you know what how do I, I film that. I was George Roy Hill was the that's director right, he gave yes. to. Yes, that's true. And um, there was a, it was like a, a magic haircut. It was like a short story about a magic haircut. And his best friend says, "I really like your hair, man." And George Roy Hill says, "No kid would ever say that to his mate." So uh, there's stuff like that. But mm. yeah, because obviously he's uh, he he's, he did uh, he read the Butch Cassidy scripts. So he had he had form with him. But yeah, no, it's wonderful. Yeah, the feedback is the feedback is just fascinating to read, and it's quite nice that. Somebody like Goldman would would actually allow uh, the readers to read his the negative feedback of his script. This million dollar a, a rewrite scriptwriter still gets feedback saying, "What the hell's this?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. How am I supposed to do this practically? How can I? Yeah, you know... Jesus, William, <laughs> you should know by now. <laughs> it's interesting because Goldman always strikes me as well as kind of the opposite. I don't know why I sort of think of the celebrity sort of fight. Uh, death fights, but um, I always think of William Goldman and Robert Town being in opposite corners for some reason, even though they're probably very similar as, uh, you know, in terms of career. But William mm. Goldman is very much revealing 
this is how I do it. Nobody knows every anything. We're all a bunch of schmucks. And Robert Town feels more like, um, I'm not going to tell you that I actually wrote this with another guy in the room collaborating with me all the time. I, I think, yeah, Goldman was very good at sort of just saying, I can't believe I did. It, it, yeah, it, his favourite anecdotes seem to be the ones where he screwed up royally. Um, I think maybe he's enough of a writer to understand. He probably thinks the reader will think, this is actually the most interesting. This is one I'll skip to. Yeah, but at the yeah. same time, it, it takes a sort of bit of selflessness to be able to say, "Yeah, <laughs> yeah. here's the time I tried to write this, and uh, oh my god, what a nightmare." I mean, one thing I've noticed doing the podcast is bad movies make great books in the sense that you know it's the it's the bonfire of vanities which makes yeah. the best yes. film book. You know, not not. Uh, I mean, the Mad Max Fury Road is kind of like tr des really really trying to. Uh, prove that wrong by saying look, let's let's see how a great film is made but even mm. there you're kind of look very aware of how close that came to going absolutely wrong what about you ian have you got a, a film book recommendation well I, yeah um i mean again i think all of the ones that have been you know covered in the podcast would be high up the list so i sort of um like kai i don't want to sort of go over uh, ground that's been covered so th there's, there's probably um I think one, and it's just a bit of a tricky one because you have to get it on import. You, you can't get it. It hasn't been released in this country, but it, this one is just purely for the fun of the, again, the absolute chaos that actually something um, kind of fun came out of it. So I'm going to go fairly lowbrow and I'm going for a book called um, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story, which is about the making of Caddyshack. And it came oh, out right. a, a year ago. And it is fascinating. Why it's not had a release here, I don't know. I had to get it imported. It's, uh, I've got it here. There we go. <laughs> um, and it is a, it is a delight. It, so I'm going for a lowbrow film, but it contains all the stuff that you'd want from a really good um, making book, you know, the, the writing of it, which was a complete chaos. You know, there wasn't, as you'd imagine, there wasn't a script. And uh, the absolute chaos of filming it with staggeringly difficult personalities you know i mean it, you know you you do wonder at the sanity of poor old howard ramis who had to sort of work with these people um <laughs> and then chose to do it again many many, many times with with, with the two two particularly very difficult men but i found it fascinating again because i think for the same reason you know kai said with uh, advanced in screen trade it's the best ones really look under the hood you know, and um, you, you get under the hood of all the decision-making processes. And again, this is an interesting one, but, you know, it was chaotic, you know, a little bit like, say, you know, Bonfire Vanities maybe, but you got the sense that they still kind of knew what they were making. Mm. So they're like Mad Max Fury Road. You get the sense that it sails close to the wind, but they still kind of knew what they were doing. But what's fascinating in particular is that when they had it finished, um, they actually, I think this is the sort of the, the particularly fun part of the book, is they actually basically did rewrite the film in the edit. This was one of those ones like, um, what was the William Friedkin musical that, that was a huge flop, but then the editor did come in and re-put it together again. I can't remember. It was, it was before French Connection. So, uh, right, they made Minsky's. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and he, we, he can claim, oh, yes, yeah, so that was all my idea. But I think on this occasion, the editor did say that. Um, so it was interesting that, and in, in that film was literally rewritten in the edit. And, and Kadichek was as well. So they had a cut that was something like four hours. And they pretty much cut all of the stuff out with the teenagers and said, well, the, the story really is 
you know the the older guys battling against each other to to sort of claim so that and I thought that was fascinating that you think you've got one thing but they literally did cut pretty much two and a half hours out and said we'll just get rid of all the stuff of the teenagers that's just not interesting. Um, <laughs> Adrian, Bro- all, Adrian you know, Brody lands on the uh, lands the, on the, the cutting thin, room the floor thin again. Red line by, <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's a lowbrow book, but it's again you know I put it up there with it has the depth and breadth of you know the Chinatown book and the you know, the Highlander book. It's it's in that book and the, and you know the Mad Max one, which is a fascinating approach. But um, yeah, highly recommend it. it. It's it's obviously I think you need to be have maybe fond memories of the film as a kid to sort of get it. So it's possibly a little niche, um, mm. but it's a wonderful read. It's mm. yeah, it's up there I think with the best of them. What's the name of the writer? So the writer is uh, Chris. Oh, Nashawati. Let me just hold that up. I'm not sure I can quite get that. Okay, Chris Nashawati. Yeah, yeah. Nashawati. I think is a pronunciation. I'll uh, I'll put it in the uh, in the show notes so that people can can mm. can try to get it on import. It might just be simply he hasn't get got it on Amazon. Right. Yeah, yeah. I just got it through Amazon, and uh, it's just yeah, it's an odd one. It just hasn't had a release in this country. But um, I mean. Yeah. The, uh, but there is a thing about British libel laws, which uh, there are some books that have never come out about Hollywood specifically that that haven't come out in England because they think they would get um, they would get uh, sued, you know. Essentially, okay. yeah. Yeah. yeah, because uh, in America you've got freedom of speech as a sort of constitutional oh, right. Of course, yeah, uh, but, that would make uh, sense because yes, <laughs> now you said that, that does make a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure if that's the case. They might just not have a British publisher. They might, you know, mm. it might just be an economic decision. But uh, by yeah, the- it's a, a more of a niche film, I suspect. So it, it may not have got much traction here. Um, yeah, yeah, it's one of those, you know, it's the the cult, the cult favorite, which which often means it lost loads of money for everybody mm. and then got bought cheap for TVs. <laughs> uh, thank you guys for uh, and yeah, let's do let's maybe do this again sometime when uh, sure. we, it, it, yeah, it's great to to have a conversation like this. Pleasure and seriously, con- congratulations on it for your yeah. anniversary of it. It's you've got it, it's no, it's been I can't every week. It's a proper highlight you know oh okay uh, nobody else is doing it mm. and you've got it i think you've 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 come up with something just absolutely spot on it's lo- it's lovely to hear the the guests you have like, particularly like the american guests who kind of might not know you and everything the way you can hear them just warming to you because <laughs> they can tell a you know what you're talking about be passionate and it's not a it's not a clickbait thing you're not trapping anyone and they just kind of it's lovely it's just Every one of them is a, a pearl. It is. It, I have to second that. It's a wonderful podcast. And and I think particularly important, you know, in an age where we don't have bookstores, mm. um, you are serving that function of curating good books for people mm. to look at. You know, the interviews are fantastic. You know, you, you do the one thing, which is you give them time to talk and to and to breathe into what they're saying but and on a functional level you know we don't have bookstores now you know so you need a curated place to find good books and it's wonderful i'm with you know i'm just like what well, what's my next book you know i know i know <laughs> yeah. i've got one coming soon so it's lovely to have almost a good editor saying well this is how this is you know uh, so yeah it's like it's like you're curating a really good store of books for people to find so no thank you it's a wonderful podcast oh brilliant oh i really appreciate that guys it really it means a lot it means (laughs) 
So that was a special episode of Writers on Film with far too many re recommended books for me to um, to detail here. Uh, it was really great talking to, to a diverse bunch of people from film critics like Luke Hicks and Jason Solomons um, all the way through to, to Ian uh, Killick and Kai Ross and everybody else in between. I'm sorry, I'm not, not naming everybody, but I'll put them all in the names in the show notes so that you know who you were you were listening to. Um, I was really enjoyed that conversation. I really enjoyed the, the variety, and I hope you did too. Thank you very much to Elliot Atkins for the music, to Ali Harwood for the art. Thank you to everybody who took part. Absolutely, absolutely great. And thank you also to the listener. I'll talk to you next week. on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks italian leather jackets and so much more and the best part about quince they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe ethical and responsible manufacturing elevate your style without the elevated price tag with quince go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns